Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll read verses 11 and 12. And then in chapter 12 we'll read verses 13 and 14. The preacher says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to men of understanding nor favor to men of skill. Time and chance happen to them all. Man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net Like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Now let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I hope you noticed the sermon title in your bulletin this morning, All Sunshine and Roses. I get that line from um, a line of a song in uh, one of the VeggieTales videos. Larry is singing a silly song, and it's supposed to be a blues song, and he starts out by saying, All Sunshine and Roses, No Rain Came My Way. Ironically, he's singing a very joyous song in a very, very um, bluesy manner. But I use that phrase, all sunshine and roses, and of course I couple it with a question mark because we know that life is not always all sunshine and roses, and those who think that it is all sunshine and roses often find themselves being very disappointed when they realize sometimes it's rainy and sometimes the roses' petals are falling off. The book of Ecclesiastes was a song for the Hebrew people to be sung at the Feast of Booths. It was part of the third section of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, called the Writings. I remember uh, just this past Monday, we ran into Jan and Tatiana at the fair, North Georgia State Fair. And as um, we had spent uh, just a few minutes chit-chatting with them, we made our way a little bit further down through the fair, and we got to the... To the um, I don't know what you'd call them, but the, uh, the little sheds where they've got booths set up and everything. And every year we go through there, and every year we go see the same booths, and every year we see some of the same people. But we're passing, uh, passing along the way, and we passed, uh, we we're coming past the Gideon's booth. And uh, one of the men said, would you kids like a Bible? And Lindsay, said, Lindsay tried to say no, because they've already got a bunch, and you know, those, those would be helpful to, to other people as well, and they've got a bunch of the Gideon Bibles, and uh, Emery and Mealy said, yeah, and so he runs over, and he reaches out his hand, and he takes the man up on his offer, and then he's just trotting along, proud of his Bible, and of course, I, I was struck, as I always am, that uh, it's not a Bible, it's a New Testament, that's, that's it, it's a, a, a fourth of a Bible, maybe a third at best, because normally they couple the, uh, the Psalms in there with them. But this book, Ecclesiastes, in the Old Testament, 
is probably the book that we would most, if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably most likely wish that it wasn't in our Bibles if there was any single book that we would say that of. It's a very negative book. Very, very negative. It says very little about faith. Virtually nothing about hope. Very little directly about God. It's, it's negative towards life in general. It's negative toward all the aspects of life. It's a book that, uh, to be honest, is nearly impossible to not take out of context. It's nearly impossible to not take it out of context. You pull a single one of these verses out, and man, you've got a theology that you're having to wrestle with that's kind of weird and odd. It's a book that's really best taken as a whole. And that's really how it was intended. Like I said, it was a song. It was a song that was to be sung by by the Hebrew people at the Feast of Booths. The writer calls himself a preacher. Your translation might say the teacher. The, the name Ecclesiastes, you might think, wait a minute, where do I know that name? Well, ecclesiastical means related to the church. It's a Greek term that means the, the assembly or the gathering. Those who have been called out. And Ecclesiastes means the gatherer or the assembler. The one who's called it together. The one who's called the congregation together. And so some of your translations will call him a teacher. Some will call him a preacher. But he sees himself as one who is gathering up the people to share some wisdom. Even though he kind of mocks wisdom a little bit. To share a little bit about what he's learned in life. Though he mocks that a little bit too. And so the intention in a sermon... And a song is to hear it all together in context. Not to analyze individual parts, but to hear it all together. And so this morning, as we look at just these few verses, I want to try to help us consider the whole text. Ecclesiastes, temptation of mine is to say, okay, forget the sermon, I'll just read through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'd be able to do it, even though it's 12 chapters, we'd be able to do it in about the time of a typical sermon. That's the temptation, but uh, I'll not pursue it today. Instead, I'll try to just highlight a few thoughts that, that the preacher here wants us to understand. When we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, we've got to keep in mind what type of literature it is. It's a song, yes, but it's a part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And in wisdom literature, you have positive wisdom literature, and you have kind of negative wisdom literature. This is obviously falling into the category of the negative wisdom literature. Positive wisdom literature would would be uh, reminiscent of the book of Proverbs. These are reflections on life as it should be. These are principles and rules by which we ought to live. When life is working, when life is put together, this is kind of how it ought to happen. You know, if you're righteous, you're blessed. If you're unrighteous, you're cursed. If you chase after a harlot, you're going to get burned in life. If you stay faithful to the wife of your youth, you'll find God's blessings. Life, when it's working as it should, when there are no problems, when there are no troubles, and so we read verses like, train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end he'll not depart from it. And too many Christian families, quite frankly, 
have, have found their worlds torn apart thinking, what happened? We did our best. We raised our child in church. We taught him the scriptures. We prayed over him. We prayed with him. What happened? It didn't turn out right. That's when the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. And we hear the voice, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. The book of Ecclesiastes, rather than being reflections on life as it should be, is reflections on life as it seems to be. Not as it is, but as it seems to be. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. One of the marks of the popularity of this book, some of you remember it from your childhood. I remember it from my childhood, not because it was contemporary at that time, but because it was considered the oldies at that time. You remember the song by the birds. Turn, turn, turn. Did you know that every, every word of that song is taken directly out of the book of Ecclesiastes except for the third verse and, of course, that, the, the title, Turn, 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 which recurs throughout. But every bit of it's right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. A very fascinating thing. The song was originally written by Pete Seeger. He wasn't the first to perform it. He was actually the second. He wrote it, somebody performed it, he performed it, and then the birds made it popular. We hear Ecclesiastes and we, it resonates with us. Perhaps we're too cynical. Perhaps we're as cynical as the preacher in Ecclesiastes. There's a time for war, a time for peace, a time for love, a time for hate. A time for mending, a time for tearing. Nothing new under the sun. Everything we see has always been. It's always happened. Vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything is fleeting. Ecclesiastes offers us these reflections on life as it seems to be. But the problem with life as it seems to be is it's a lot like reality TV. Sure, it's based on reality. Sure, people do these sorts of things. But yet it's dangerously flawed. You know, the real world is not often what's portrayed in shows like The Real World. Reality television, yeah, you've got normal people sometimes doing normal things, but normally and it's a very not normal context and normally you don't have cameras surrounding you and boom stands with mics on them surrounding you. You're not mic'd up every day of your life. And so what the Hebrews, or what, the, uh, what the, this Hebrew man, the Ecclesiastes writer, is trying to offer us is he's trying to offer us a glimpse of life as it seems. When we find ourselves living in the real world, we find that life doesn't always work out like we intended. We find that our history unravels and develops in ways we never expected. We find that we did things 
the right way, we did the right things. We did the right things the right way in the right moments with the right intentions and yet, boom, it blows up in our face. We find that those who live by a disciplined diet and remain healthy and strong and those who really discipline themselves and watch what they eat and watch what they drink and watch the things that they allow into their bodies and live a good and safe and careful life, that tragedy still happens. Death comes to all. No one is guarded from sadness. And the Hebrews, or the, the Ecclesiastes writer, I think I keep saying Hebrews because Ecclesiastes is kind of, for me, the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament book Hebrews. Both of them are very tough, really tough. Tough to wrestle with. What this writer, this preacher, this ecclesiastical one, what he offers us is a couple of a couple of summations about what he sees. And the first is regarding answers. You know, answers in life. Thoughts on life. And what he basically says is that answers don't really come easily in life. And that's probably what I most like about the, the writer here. The preacher's honest. I remember just a few years ago being at an AIM annual meeting and um, President Smith, he's Dr. Smith, I've always called him President Smith because I've known him most of my life in the context of him being president of Western Bible Seminary. I remember he was the speaker and, uh, and he was up and in the middle of his sermon he said, look, I'm not preaching, I'm telling the truth. And I thought, oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> The preacher here is just trying to be honest about life. Answers don't come easily. Life's a bit complicated. David, I know you're so familiar with Facebook, you know that sometimes in the relationship statuses, you've got, you know, married, single, divorced, you know, that sort of thing. And then one of them is actually, it's complicated. What, what does that mean? Life's a bit complicated. You see, life seems cyclical. We, we've all learned those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. And that's a pretty good adage. But the fact is, lives and events are all truly unique. And that's why they're bestowed with value. That's why every life counts, because there's never been that life before. That person has never existed in this world, and never again will he. See, lives and events aren't just repeated. Life is not cyclical. But then on the other hand, we normally think, okay, we think of a timeline, and life is just kind of a line that's moving out, and nothing is repeated. Well, that's not life either. None of, neither of those simple ways of viewing history and viewing the world and viewing life really take into account all of the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is life is almost kind of like a, a helix. You know, you've heard of the double helix with DNA, the two, two tubes that are twisting over one another as they move out. Life is kind of like that. It's got a, a cyclical nature to it, but it's also got a linear nature to it. 
The preacher says, look, answers don't come easily. Life isn't always what we expect it to be. Life isn't always what we planned it to be. In fact, he says, sometimes life seems, seems meaningless. You hear the whispers of nihilism in the preacher's voice. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Life is going to end in death for all of us, so might as well just live it up now, enjoy what you can, and face death when it comes. The preacher's observations sometimes seem contradicting one another. He tells us to live is better than to die, but he also tells us that to be dead is better than to be alive, because if you're still living, you know you're about to die. Who knows, it might happen today. To have never lived at all is perhaps even best. He tells us, pursue wisdom, though it's just a vapor. Enjoy work, though it's tiresome. Enjoy family, though it's dying. Enjoy what you have, though it will be given to others at your death. You hear that cynicism? For the preacher, answers don't come easily. But the preacher also tells us that something about this term hubris. Pride. Loftiness. Self-lifting. He tells us that there's no ground for spiritual pride. This idea of hubris is is that voice that tells us, I'm as good as being on par with God. I'm the tops. I've got it together. I've got life by the strings. I've got it all put right. The preacher tells us, I had it all put right. I had life by the strings. I was the king. Literally. I was the tops. I had everything my heart could have desired. I had vineyards. I had a huge house. I had money in the bank. I had whatever fun I wanted. Mirth? Never saw me lacking it. He says, I was the wisest there was. I was a smart guy. I had life put together. And in the end, I realized I'm going to die. And my fortunes will go to someone else. And all of my wisdom in the end really matters nothing. Because life is fleeting. And everything I have is fleeting. That term vanity... He's not saying that life is meaningless and he's not saying that life is bad. He's saying that life is kind of like a vapor. You can't grasp it. It's like Our stuff is like sand held in our hands. It won't be there for long. Life is ungraspable. It tempts us toward thinking it's meaningless. Because it's so passing. The key 
to understanding where the Ecclesiastes writer is coming from, to, to understand what's in the mind of the preacher here, is found in the phrase, under the sun. And if you start from beginning to end in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you read and read and read, after about half an hour you'll get to the end of the book, and you'll realize he said under the sun quite a number of times, quite a number of times in that he says it 27 times in the book. Now if I repeated a phrase 27 times in a 30 minute sermon, you would think, that really means something. What's he saying here? What he's doing, remember, he's looking at life not as it is or ought to be, but as it seems to be. He's looking at life under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is code for life without God. Life just in the natural world. Forget the spiritual natural, assume it's not there. Life, we find, is contradicting. Life, we find, is ultimately just a vapor. We might be tempted to say, like the nihilists, like the existentialists, it's meaningless, pointless, a worthless endeavor. You could call this book, this sermon, something along the lines of an experiment in supposals. Suppose there is no God. Suppose this is all there is. Suppose this life is all there is to live. Suppose there's nothing beyond it but a passing memory. Life seems a bit fruitless. Suppose there is no Yahweh. Suppose there is no Redeemer. Suppose there is none who has created us and who sustains us. Yeah, life is a lot like sand in our hands. Our stuff, our health, the ones we love, it's all just passing through. But the preacher understands that Life under the sun is not all there is. And so he gives us some other clues. He tells us five times to live in the fear of the Lord. Five times. That's not 27 times. But those 27 times of under the sun is him shouting out, listen to me here, listen to me here. And what you find then is this Five times repeated refrain of living in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord essentially involves three things. It involves the conclusion that I've been created. Secondly, there's some things because I've been created that quite frankly are expected of me. And then thirdly, one day I will stand before my Creator and I'll give an account of the life that I've lived in relation to those things that have been expected to me, of me. It's called responsibility. You've been created. And yes, you are expected to live a certain way. To treat people a certain way. To do certain things for your family. To make certain sacrifices. 
to live with a certain character. A character, interestingly enough, that reflects the one who has created you. You've been made in God's image. And where the fear really comes in, is in knowing this, we conclude, one day I'll give an account. One day the books will be opened, and I'll have to give an answer. One day, the great... The greatest of all accountability partners is going to say, what about that? Living in that reality is called living in the fear of the Lord. And the preacher says, in the end, life may not make a lot of sense. In the end, my life might seem like it's just passing away. It might seem meaningless to you, but you had better live as though you're going to give an account because you will. In the end, the sum of man is to live in the fear of the Lord because God will call into account everything, known or unknown, hidden or visible. But He gives us some more advice. He tells us, because that seems a bit somber, and I'll be honest with you, as fall is here, it, it, uh, it's occurring to me, man, that it's been kind of a dreary. We, we had some, uh, we've got some dreary things going on in the text here. You know, fall kind of brings out the melancholy in me. He tells us not just to live in the fear of the Lord, but he tells us, and this is the great thing, enjoy the little things in life. He he says it multiple times in multiple ways throughout his sermon. He tells us, eat, drink. He tells us sometimes kind of sarcastically, you know, eat, drink because it's all over. But he really wants us to take seriously that advice to enjoy the little things in life, especially three things he highlights. Family. These are the things that we have received, those things that we've been given, those little things that we so often take for granted, but really are an integral part of who we are, and really are the biggest part of who we are. We just take it for granted because it's right there and we don't notice it. Now, if you're looking in a mirror, the most forward thing is your nose. It's right there. It's sticking out. Some of us have huge ones sticking out. Others, you know, not so much. But it's out there. It's the most forward part of your face. It's the most forward part. Unless you've got like a Jay Leno chin, I guess. But both of those things, really, I could use either of them, Jay Leno, he doesn't even notice his chin. Because he's looking past it. He's looking beyond it. It's difficult to look at your nose. You know, you start getting kind of blurry-eyed and you're going cross-eyed, that sort of thing, trying to see your nose. But it's right there. And it's the most forward thing out there. These are the most forward things in our lives. And we often think of them as the small things, the little things. But the preacher tells us, enjoy them. Enjoy your family. It's a gift from God. Each member of it. Enjoy them. 
Now, you remember in the... Um, in a Jewish culture, family was more than just, you know, your, your spouse and your, the kids you had. Family was everyone living in the household. Even servants, their kids. You know, for, for us... To enjoy family doesn't just mean I enjoy my wife and son and daughter and the dog or cat that we have. It's about enjoying those people that are most intimately tied to our lives. Some of us in hearing enjoy your family, we need to hear enjoy the friends and coworkers you're surrounded by because they matter. They've been placed in your life for joy even in their aggravations. They're there for a reason. You have received them. And you've received not just family to enjoy, but work to enjoy. Some of us hate work. We hate going to school. We hate writing papers. We hate reading books. We hate typing on the, on the, the keyboard. Or if you're a hipster, you hate typing on the typewriter. If you're a hipster, you probably enjoy it because you think it's ironically cool. But too many of us hate work. We loathe it. We complain when the calls come in again. I've been there. Ah, man, I've got another meeting. That work is what pays the bills. It's what feeds the bellies. It's what... Uh, enables you to enjoy the family, even if it keeps you away from them a lot. They ought to work kind of symbiotically, to use a word that Aiden has learned and, and loves. They ought to have a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, I'm away from the family to work, but it's because of work that I have a family that I can provide for it, and I'm able to provide for them. And you know what? That, that departure is going to cause me to long to see them again. And one of those, what's one of those things that when you're with family and with, when you're with friends, you're with people you haven't seen in a while, what's one of those things you want to do? You don't want to work, you want to rest from work, and you typically want to eat. He tells us, enjoy food. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy life. Food is not... I think it was, it's uh, uh, Mr. Kathy who passed away just recently. You know, you walk into the Chick-fil-A and it says... Something It's got a, 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 a quote from him, at least in a few of them that I've been into. It says something about food is so essential to life, it ought to be good. Food is not like gasoline for the car. It's not just gasoline for you. You're, not, you're more than an animal. That's another thing the Ecclesiastes writer says. You know, We think we're bigger and better than the animals. You know what? We're going to die just like they do. But that's life under the sun. The preacher wants us to hear this call to enjoy those small things in life. Enjoy the little things. Enjoy those blessings that God has brought along your path. Fear Him and enjoy His gifts. Because you'll give an account. And life under the sun is not all there is. This life that is but a vapor, this life that is passing away, 
this life that so often either calls us to be proud and calls us to look down on others or calls us to despair and say, what point is there? This life is not all there is. But it is to be enjoyed. It does provide opportunities for us to find joy in our Redeemer because He's our Creator. I don't know about you, but I know that for me, if I'm looking at the um, communication card there on the back, or if I'm looking at the back of my bullets and I'm thinking, what do I intend to do? I think one of the things I need to intend to do is to enjoy life a bit more. To not get so frustrated and anxious and so aggravated with life. To slow down. Enjoy the people around me. Enjoy the things that God has given me to do. To celebrate His presence in life. To celebrate the fact that I don't just live life under the sun. But living in the fear of the Lord, I'm afforded the opportunity to enjoy this life. To enjoy the people and the blessings of life. Knowing that they are gifts from Him. Knowing that they matter. Knowing that they're not just things to be expended, but they are rich blessings. Let's pray.